Hello and welcome to Bad Songwriter Podcast. I'm your host, Anna Holmquist. We're here today with Chicago guitarist Eli Winter. How's it going? Uh, I'm fine, you know, I guess. <laughs> Who knows, but not bad. <laughs> Comfy. Right, as fine as one can be in the world today, which is perhaps a lower level of fine than previously. We're not here to talk about that, though. We're here to talk about old <laughs> songs and songwriting. Uh, so I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about when you first started writing songs. Yeah, man, I started writing songs when I was... The first song I ever wrote, I was practicing piano as a kid. And, and I, I wrote something out that I notated in a form that wasn't actually, you know, proper Western traditional music notation style. And it was maybe a minute or so long, but it was, you know, sort of like something in the vein of chopsticks, you know, a couple index fingers doing their things. And then um, the first song I ever wrote that I can remember more concretely, I was in second grade. I wrote it entirely in my head. It was called Indian Rock and Roll, and it had, in the sense of like, you know, native tribes, and it had it was very it was very like well intentioned but it was also very like a second grader is doing this i remember the the guitar solo i stole i, I stole from i want to hold your hand no no i saw her standing there by the beatles um and that was something i would do a lot as a kid would sort of like steal very entirely ideas or motifs or something from other texts that had clearly already established those things as mm-hmm. their own which i think I'd, I'd do a better job of that now but you know maybe somebody else can be the judge but those are the first things i remember and i mean I, i've been doing that f- from a pretty young i mean pretty pretty consistently but especially starting like when i was in fifth grade or something when did you first start playing guitar like not quite eight years ago by now i guess i did a jewish summer camp in eighth grade and there was a week-long like guitar mini camp that i did and i didn't really learn anything I mean, I had a crush. I had, like, a small crush on somebody in the class. which was just, like, go figure. But um, then, like, in ninth <laughs> grade... <laughs> then, in, then in ninth grade, in high school, I started seriously playing. I saw a couple kids. I went to a, a pretty small public high school in Houston. And it was one where... I don't know how common this is, but it was a high school where you could walk around. Pretty much, you had free range of the building campus during lunch. And it was a really long lunch period, too. It was about an hour. I would spend a lot of time puttering around different rooms and you know saying hey to different friends and stuff and one towards the start of the you know freshman year i saw a couple guys um you know like cooler older kids you know had acoustic guitars and like a calc teacher's room or something and they were you know shredding you know metal style and i remember you know thinking you know i want to do something like that and i think that I, i remember thinking of that as a moment that has sort of stood out as a time that made me want to become more serious about playing the guitar. I mean, that was when I was just starting to learn. I couldn't do much beyond cowboy chords. I was afraid to bar. I, I, I was playing with a lot of caution, but, um, and also, and also teaching myself, but I would have started, you know, around that time, you know, start of freshman year in high school, which was about eight years ago. Well, we have a few old tracks to listen oh, yeah. to here. Um, so, <laughs> so what order should we listen to them in? Um, there's a there's a track called MemoJazz.AIF. That's the very first thing I ever recorded for the the fir- very first like song for the guitar I ever wrote. So I feel like that is a good first track to listen to.
what did you use to record this? I put my phone on my bed, and this one I ran. I had a friend who in seventh grade, he'd moved, he'd moved from Houston to Baltimore area, uh-huh. like Baltimore County, and then um, he came back for a weekend or so in seventh grade, and we hung out, and we were both playing clarinet at the time in the middle school band, uh, you know, schools respected middle school band programs, and he was like, oh, so if you're interested in playing music, you've got to, you know, get this program called Logic, and I had never heard of Logic, I didn't and still don't have any, you know, formal equipment to record music uh-huh. with at home, but in seventh grade, you know, he downloaded U-Torn on my little MacBook laptop thing, did I even have one then? Maybe, maybe... No, no, this is a little later. This is ninth grade. I didn't have a laptop back then. But, like, start of high school, I think I'd finally gotten a laptop. And you had come, like, a summer sometime before. And he turned in Logic Pro, and I had no idea what it was. Um, and, of course, it's this, like, massive, you know, recording and mixing and music processing mm-hmm. software. And it has a steep learning curve. And I had no idea even what its basic uses were for. Um... But I remember I put this iPhone recording in it, and I just stuck it through like a jazz guitar amp emulator, uh-huh. and called it a day. <laughs> and that, that's all I did to it. I'm pretty sure it was Logic. I don't think it was GarageBand. Because uh-huh. Logic would be like a fancy enough program that I would think, oh shit, this is something that's actually going to make a difference, you know, right. and, and, and the way the song sounds. Yeah, this was on a small Seagull acoustic guitar. Um, I'm playing with the guitar pick plectrum. I, ha- I was learning, I was learning and like trying to learn and failing to learn a lot of Nick Drake songs on the guitar at this time. And this song, I remember I put in the tuning he uses for From the Morning. B E B E B E. Oh yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, and I capoed it on the the fifth fret, no, the fourth fret. Um, so it's D sharp and G sharp are the notes. What in particular is embarrassing about this one to you? Um, <laughs> it feels very, it feels very much like a song in which I am trying to cover my utter lack of knowledge of playing the guitar or technique with an alternate tuning. <laughs> Because, you know, I didn't know, you know, one of the first, you know, when I was first starting to learn guitar, you know, standard tunings pretty quickly became uninteresting for me. And it took me a long time, you know, I didn't realize until a year or so ago, maybe, that that was just because of how little I knew about how to play. That with a stronger foundation, that kind of tuning, not, or foundation in theory, foundation in, you know, different things you can do with your hands, that that tuning would be a lot more compelling um, it could hold your interest in the same ways that some open tuning you've never heard of that completely changes the relationship of every string to each other from standard tuning would be. For sure. But at the, but at the time I recorded that, and you know, that's pretty much improvised, of course. I was still very much in the mode of having that sort of awareness that an open tuning would be not just more interesting, but also hide the fact that I was a pretty bad player. Like, it, it's maybe kind of pretty or something. It's not bad, per se, but it... Um, but it, but it, you know, definitely wears those characteristics on its sleeve. All right, what's the next one you have? 
The next song is oh wow, this is this is an M4A file that has three dashes. Yeah, I see. I see that. <laughs> and that's that's the name of the song. Oh, it's three dashes. Yes, because I, I didn't know what to call it. Well, naming songs is diff- naming things is difficult. Naming things is very difficult. I mean, it's, I think especially um, for songs that are instrumentals. I, I know there are people who really relish the thought of naming an instrumental song, you know, for guitar or whatever other instruments, you know, something, you know, really fun. Like, and it's not that it isn't fun to name stuff, but the implications of the names you choose seem so weighty, you know, that I... Right, if it's the only words that are associated with the song that's an instrumental piece, right, then it's like, it feels, I can see how it would feel a little more heavy <laughs> or yeah, difficult like to choose like, you can't just like pick some lyrics you know that's what i do for a lot of my songs <laughs> i'm just like all right well here's like a lyric from the song and we're just gonna call it that um but yeah can't really do that with a song with no words yeah of course but i mean also there's a thought of like um you don't want to like with the song with lyrics you know there's a chance that it'll have like a narrative arc and then that's part of the point of the song right like you know direct narrative arc and so it makes sense. I think, especially in that context, it would make sense that a person who writes music with lyrics, who is choosing a song, a title for their song with words, would just pick a lot, pick a phrase from the song or something, without the thought that like that's literally impossible for a song without words. There's also the thought of like you wouldn't. At least I'm. I'm always concerned about like I really don't want to ascribe a narrative arc to a song that doesn't necessarily have one. You know, I want right. the title to come as close to representing the qualities that i associate with the song as much as i can and so um to pick something just off the cuff or to let friends pick or other people pick titles because i I have a friend who does that she has a pretty big fan base and she has like let let fans choose a number of the song titles before and i'm just i'm really impressed because that kind of like creative control i just couldn't imagine seeding it well, maybe someday. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I would, I would do. The you know, with some of the first songs I would write for the guitar, and a friend would give me a song title and say, you know, here's this one, and I would be like, great, thank you. And then you know, I'd you know, play a show or something, and you know, announce the name of the song, and immediately feel like, oh, this feels stupid. This doesn't feel right. <laughs> um, you know, but yeah. Well, let's give this one a listen. It's like over ten minutes long, so we're yes, just going to do an ex- an excerpt here. Yes, very crucial that. It is, it, we say it is not necessary to hear this entire, in its entirety because, <laughs> oh God, it really isn't. I'm listening to this one with my eyes closed. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're asking how long how long after the first track that we listened to did you write this one um I th- hmm it was high school definitely I want to say I'm a little I'm a little fuzzy on the years offhand yeah that's fair um, time is meaningless but I think <laughs> especially now but I think it was um it, could, it wouldn't have been very long after, you know? It wouldn't have been like three years or something afterwards. Yeah. Probably, you know, I, I'd guess about a year, maybe a year and a half or so after. Uh-huh. You know, something from like, 
something before 12th grade, definitely. So that would have been like 2014 in uh-huh. the spring. My dad, my dad taught himself to play cowboy chords and stuff for Jewish songwriting things, and he bought he bought a Yamaha guitar in the '70s, and he's just always had it. And um, I think he, I think he'd restrung it recently, and I was using these strings. This is part of a larger project for a program I was doing about um, with with like the local Jewish community center sort of thing. I think it was with the branch of the Anti-Defamation League, which has a whole lot of other implications, of course, now. But it's something that, you know, like, my religious school, they're an establishment, you know, they're sort of an establishment Jewish organization. Uh-huh. And so it makes sense that, you know, a religious school for a big synagogue in Houston where my family are members and where I'd attended the religious school my whole time in Houston would affiliate with them for programs. And so this is, you know, for a, for a program, the end of the end of this program, it was I think a, about a school year long, maybe or a semester long. And at the end of the program, you'd have to you'd go in, you'd go in every week or so, maybe once or twice a week, and you'd have supper and learn different things about you know quote unquote hatred in American society. And of course, there are very specific kinds of hatred that they weave out, or prejudice that they weave out, and so on, and that you don't necessarily recognize they're weaving out at the time because you're in tenth grade and you're learning from people who they've trained and such. But for the, it was a project, you know, a program that had a sort of capstone project at the end um, to do something related to, you know, whether advocacy or creative or otherwise, something related to the um, what we've been learning about. And so I tried very, very hard to write what I thought of as a concept album about. Something, something like a family, like, going, you know, through the Holocaust, a Jewish family, mm-hmm. you know, there's so- there, there one song called Train Song, because every song on, on this quote-unquote concept album was entirely um, unsettled, and I don't even, and there's was, there was six songs, no, I don't even remember what would have been going on, it wasn't a very strong conceptual art <laughs> <laughs> but you know I, I think I recorded it with like a field recorder my dad had um, I burned it to a CD and they told me they listened to every song and they, they chose a section of a different song to play at this like award ceremony supper at the end you know to say congratulations to everybody for finishing this program and maybe somebody will win and I remember thinking I, I hope I win this thing because I tried really hard but also I was mortified when they started playing one of the songs from the CD, and you know, for obvious reason, yeah, you know, you can hear the my, the tinniness of that high E string. You know, that that alone is mortifying beyond <laughs> the technical like improprieties. Oh, I don't think it's that mortifying. I mean, I, think I, I feel perhaps mortified. you're being a little hard on yourself. I I I I, I hear that, and I think. I, I, I hear that particular string and I think, well, I, 
remember the heads I remember the sort of headspace I was in working on this and like being very aware of like how much work I thought I was putting into this when actually it wasn't very much especially in terms of technique mm. or songwriting or whatever um. <laughs> is technique very much tied to songwriting for you are you thinking about all both of those things at the same time all of the time Yeah, pro- probably. I, th- I think I think without realizing it, you know, because I had to, because that sort of stopped me in my tracks. But yeah, of course, I think, mm-hmm. um, because the sort of at least the sort of music, there's so much. Um, it's easy, I think, for people to play in the patterns, whether of their own design or of somebody else's design. You know, Fahey or whatever, John Fahey, mm-hmm. um, and it's easy for people to, I think, play in the veins of the cis straight white men and they're always as far as I'm aware cis straight white men who people have you know decided are the touchstones of this approach to guitar playing um well like John Fahey's like somebody who like if you go to like Rolling Stone this or that guitarist list he'll be there like number 371 or something like he's got he's got a place in a sort of like second half of the 20th century American music canon, but also the ways that he plays are obvious and crib a lot from, you know, old dead black bluesmen. Right. And that's, I think it's really easy. the story easy. of music history. <laughs> totally, yeah. And so I think it's really easy with, you know, guitar music for people to play specifically, specifically like self-taught guitar music that is coming from like not a formal background, whether jazz or classical or something, but something that you're arriving at through like your own intuitive understanding of what the thing is. I think it's easy, um, and I've heard a lot of people play in a way that they, without maybe without necessarily realizing, are taking another person's technique and making and and, and just saying this is mine now. Well, they don't necessarily realize the, the the different sources that other person was, you know, regarding for an approach that that person at the time perhaps it would have been inventive and now it isn't. Right. Um, and it make and it makes it sort of thing pretty stale. And it's definitely something I was doing at first. You know, I, I would play shows. Um, you know, some of these guys who are alive and doing guitar music are you know some of the among the closest things I have to heroes. And I'd play shows one time. Um, Daniel Bachman is friend and the closest thing I had to a hero without a doubt and by chance he came to he came through Houston on tour one time I had a show the same night but like an 11 at night and he was like yeah sure I'll go to this whatever which was amazingly you know nice of him for, for all sorts of reasons and then I played a lot of songs of his at that show in my set and I remember thinking this is gonna like impress him so much and I think it did but also at the time I didn't realize you know quite how strange that must have been to hear somebody else playing their songs and try and trying to reach that point of like doing their own thing to see very clearly that like I had not gotten there yet but Mm -hmm. he was still you know listening anyway I mean I think that there isn't like a there to get to necessarily 
I think a lot of songwriters and musicians, no matter what mode that they're writing in, you know, start off with a lot of imitation. That I think has one of been one of the big themes of doing this podcast is, you know, you start off trying to imitate the people that you hear, right? And then you do develop your own voice. But I think it's like a continual journey. Uh, yeah, of, of like of like processing other art that you and you know whatever that is not just not just songwriters or not just mm-hmm. music in your mode but you know art in general in the world like the things that you see the things you hear the things that you are taking in and talking about and like figuring out how to process that process that through a lens that is yours and unique in some way and um authentic i think mm-hmm. so I, I feel like it's all just a process of uh, getting toward that authenticity i don't know for me anyway yeah for sure we have one more song here to listen to song for the moon do you want to talk a little bit about this before we give it a listen yeah um actually how much do i really remember about it it might be a little easier afterward actually all right well let's give a listen to this final song here Hearing the notes that I missed in my head. Oh yeah. You know the notes I was supposed to play. I don't know if you know. Um, the guitarist Michael Chapman at all? No. Oh, he's super cool. He's super cool. He's um, he's been at it for like over fifty years, and um, when he almost every time when he whenever he plays, he wears an Arkansas Razorbacks hat. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's he's British. He has like no connection personally, I think, to Arkansas as a state or like as a university entity. But um, I'm hearing those like um, those like first and third octave chords, you know, arpeggios in the first and on, on the fourth and sixth strings. Mm-hmm. That's something that I would have been hearing in a lot of his music. Like in that like in the earlier song we just listened to as well. Um, that's something that I would have a sort of compositional trick, if you will, that um, I, I I would have heard him do it. And then I would have done it. Yeah. And did. <laughs> and you did it. Uh, yeah. This is from a, a demo recording and I think a good old family friend helped me make, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, ooh, oh, ow, ah, man, yeah. <laughs> that, that was, that riff was not supposed to go like that. <laughs>
it seems you've touched on this a little bit, but how would you say over the years that your songwriting process has changed? I think um, as a, you know, by way of en- entering into an answer, when I was first starting to play shows, these are a lot of like shitty tip or no tip coffee shop gigs in Houston, sort of because that was all I could get. And it was also all I needed to play shows where I could play before an audience who also completely had little, if any investment, you know, they oftentimes completely would not care. Like people would, people would throw dollar bills in my guitar case out of pity. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's actually like what would happen um, if it did. They were very much the sort of shows that you'd let yourself play to start getting your feet wet. And, I, and then you would reach a certain point and say never again. But but you know I I you know was growing up carless in Houston and unable to drive. Even even if I knew more people who were plugged into DIY spaces or artist-run spaces or experimental or underground spaces in Houston, I just wouldn't be able to get to them very easily, if at all. I think in part as a function of my high school being as small as it was. And, you know, those cultures, you know, in Houston anyway, being underground, as opposed to in Chicago, they have some amount of internet presence for, like, a Mavic Books concert of improvised music or something. Um, or, like, the now-is.org Chicago music calendar for, like, quote-unquote experimental shows. Like, that's stuff I really wanted to know about in Houston and had a little, if any, idea that it was happening. And so I think as a result of that, I ended up playing a lot of the very first concerts I gave and, and a, a lot of them, you know, like I, I would do, I would often do, you know, a couple shows in a week, mm-hmm. maybe two or three in a week. And my mom would would always drive me. And sometimes she would, you know, go home or sit in the car, or, you know, I'd have to ask her to pick me up or something at the end. I, I, I was definitely lucky that she never said stop and she never really asked why I was doing it and in a way that would make me feel like I shouldn't be doing it. You know, but I think in part because of those shows being as low stakes as they were, and a number of them, I should mention, happened at Super Happy Funland, which is this legendarily, like, spooky venue in Houston. Like, I, the worst music you I've ever heard in my entire life, I've heard at Super Happy Funland. Like, music so bad that I wanted to heckle and egg oh, and dear. the performer and leave the room all at the same time. And they also let me play. Like, my very first show was at Super Happy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, like, these shows... You know, a lot, because there were several mistakes, I would play other people's music. I'd play a lot of Daniel's music. I'd play a lot of Jack Rose music or Michael Chapman or other things. You know, because teaching myself, I, and I, I have perfect pitch and I, you know, play by ear a lot of the time. And uh, in part by necessity, because it's not like there's tabs out there. There are tabs out there for much of this music. But also in part because it's, it, I think, it, um, a really helpful way to learn any kind of music if you're able to. It is challenging in different ways, of course, but it was... Good, good exercise. I, I I would pretty unabashedly just play other people's songs, and maybe a, a song or two of mine. But I, even as I would play it, you know, I'd have that sense. Oh, this just doesn't. This doesn't feel ready to play. I think in part because those were coming so plainly from the influence of others, especially you know Jack Rose and Daniel Bachman. And so um, it wasn't until I moved to Chicago about four years ago, you know, that I first wrote a song for the guitar that felt like my own. That was Woodhull and Waltz from the first record of mine, The Time to Come. So much of the other music I had written, I was acutely aware of the people I was influenced by mm-hmm. and the sorts of things I wanted to do, but whether because of technique or because of, you know, arriving at a sort of an, like intuitive sense of songwriting that does 
the things has the effects you wanted to have. I could isolate the things that I was influenced by in this song, or, you know, in any of these songs I'd heard, and, and have that sense of, oh, I see what I was trying to do, and I see that I was just not arriving at that point where I would feel satisfied with it myself. You know, like, writing that 11-minute long song with the three dashes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, just by chance, moving here, correcting a couple seemingly minor but really helpful technical issues. Like, I think all of this music, for example, that we've listened to, if I were wearing finger picks for it, with it to record it, I would have worn a finger pick on my thumb as opposed to an actual thumb pick, you know, the thing that it's literally designed for. Uh-huh. And so, and so that, you know, it seems like it might not make much of a difference, but, you know, a thumb pick, the pick is stretching from a 90 degree angle to where you're angling, you know, to where your thumb is pointing. Uh-huh. But if you were a, a finger pick on your thumb, your thumb is pointing in the same direction as your other fingers, and that limits mobility a lot. And it also really erodes, wears the guitar strings a lot quicker if you if you play that way, which I did, you know, the entire, just about all the time I was in high school, because, not, not because I didn't know any better exactly, but because I, it took me a significant amount of time from the time I had finger picks as like a Hanukkah gift to the time I started to wear them, an even more significant amount of time from the time I was wearing finger picks to the time that I realized, okay, I'm going to finally break down and actually wear a thumb pick. And as you can imagine, it pretty quickly upgraded my technique and enabled me to do a lot of other things more quickly than I would have been able to otherwise. A combination of correcting small things like that that still made a big difference in the things I was able to do, and having maybe heard just enough such music to have a really curmudgeonly sense of what I like and don't like, and to um, start to feel comfortable improvising and to start feeling like okay maybe maybe at some point soon uh, i'll have arrived at something that will feel like my own i think i think a combination of all those factors maybe Uh came together i'd be able to start writing music that even if it was even if i had thought of it with another song in mind as a model the different points of influence would feel like woven within the fabric of the song as opposed to being just a straight just yeah. a straight copy or something like that. Yeah, that totally yeah. makes sense. Things things as inspiration instead of as a literal template. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think a lot of people can relate to that. What are some things you've been listening to lately, speaking of inspiration, that have been inspiring you or that you've been liking? This has been something that I've thought pretty consistently in the past few years about the thought of things being spirit rich. Spirit rich. And so I think back a lot to a few people in particular in terms of inspirations, although there are plenty of others, you know, there's, there are things to learn from just about everything you'd hope. But people, with that in mind in particular, I've been thinking about Tara Jane O'Neill. I mean, sort of like, I wish I could be thinking about Tara Jane O'Neill's music since like the dawn of my, my existence, because she's uh-huh. just the coolest, she's maybe the coolest person on the planet. And um, there are no ifs, ands, or buts, or qualifications she actually is. And her, her music has something of those qualities to it, so, so something like both of those qualities but also something really uncompromising um no matter how you know quote-unquote commercial that's the word my dad might use commercial might sound um or what kinds of other you know more accessible gestures it might make gestures it might present as being more accessible to not active music listeners less active music listeners but that sense of you know having a really strong idea of the work she's making the things she's doing aesthetically and otherwise i'm really inspired by that i've been listening to the new 10c record a lot mm-hmm. um it's been making me um ball 
completely. Uh-huh. Um, just yeah, sobbing at like three in the morning. That kind of reaction, I feel really lucky to have that reaction from her music. Judy Sill, her music has made me do that for about two years by now. Um, lately, I've been listening to this band Long Finn Killies slowly because their music is um, pretty dense in terms of the different kinds of elements that it incorporates, and there's a lot going on in it. But that kind of that that music in particular, it's this guy Luke something with Luke Stevenson maybe. Um, I'm looking it up real quick. We want to get about Luke Sutherland. He's a black dude from the UK, um, and he's been he's another music lifer. Um, Marquis Smith sang on their first record at some point. You know, that or other music like Still House Plants or um, Isaiah Collier and the Chosen Few is a... He's a really... Isaiah's a really incredible young musician from the South Side, um, black sax player and drummer and band leader. Or the new David Grubbs and Taku Unami record, Vivi Lightbody, my friend Sam Wagster's new single as the father costume i think like in all all of this music and there's you know plenty else i can mention as you as you can tell but uh-huh. i think in all the, i think in all that music there is a sort of similar thread that you could trace even if it um you know something akin to the things that i'm feeling inspired by even if the music as it would you know presents that in quite different ways well thank you so much for being on the podcast yeah thank you so much for having me my pleasure And thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. You can find Eli's music on the internet everywhere you find music, and you can find us on Instagram at Bad Songwriter and on Twitter at Bad underscore Songwriter. If you would like to be on the podcast, you can shoot me an email at badsongwriterpod at gmail.com. And if you're liking the show, we'd love it if you could rate, review, subscribe, follow, tell a friend, post about it on social media. It really helps us out. All right, I hope you have a good one. Bye. Thank you.